0: You know,
1: uh, in our neighborhood, we had a
0: bunch of jokers. I mean, we were a real wild bunch of guys. And we figured out a perfect way to put a car out of commission. You take a potato, you stick it in the exhaust pipe. It doesn't cause any damage, but the car won't start. It was a terrible thing to do. And I got a feeling that the reason I became a cop was to make up for all those jokes I played when I was a kid.
1: More, Adam. You can celebrate the diamond anniversary of game shows this holiday season, not to mention the 55th anniversary of the premiere of Hollywood Squares with five star studded performances of Hollywood Museum Squares now available for streaming on demand through StellarTickets.com, featuring nearly 50 stars from the world of television, including former Hollywood Squares hosts Peter Marshall, John Davidson, and Tom Bergeron as well as former Squares panelists Rich Little, Lee, and Gilbert Gottfried, and one-time Hollywood Squares writer and regular panelist Bruce Valanche, not to mention such stars as Lonnie Anderson, Lindsay Wagner, Dee Wallace, Jerry Mathers, Loretta Swit, and Donna Mills. Hollywood Museum Squares is a great viewing suggestion for families, friends, and game show fans as they gather together for the holidays. Individual episodes of Hollywood Museum Squares are available for $10 through StellarTickets.com, or you can purchase all five episodes as a bundle at a special holiday season price of just $30. Proceeds from sales of Hollywood Museum Squares support the efforts of our friends at the Hollywood Museum. Go to StellarTickets.com for more information. The special $30 bundle for all five episodes of Hollywood Museum Squares is valid through Christmas Day, December 25th, 2021.
0: Hi, this is Dean Hargrove, and you're listening to TV Confidential.
1: At Robertson will guest David Koenig. David's latest book, Shooting Columbo, Shooting Columbo, The Lives and Deaths of TV's Rumpel Detective, provides a blow-by-blow account of the making of the Columbo television series and the development of the Columbo character, both on NBC and on ABC. Shooting Columbo, available wherever books are sold, as well as Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. River books are sold online. Before we went to break, we were talking to David about how even though shooting Columbo introduces us to many of the very real people behind the scenes at Universal and NBC and ABC, on both the original Columbo and the ABC Columbo's, it is very much like a novel in that he brings the characters to life with respect to Peter Falk. We were talking to David about how I found Peter Falk as a character both sympathetic and exasperating at the same time.
0: Just like in real life. <laughs> that, was, that was. I'll be honest, that, that was one thing that worried me as I was compiling research and conducting interviews and looking at production reports of, of time after time after time where he drove the people who uh, employed him crazy. And I thought, well, I've got to show what really happened. But... I mean, everybody loves Peter Fox. Yeah. And, and you know, how, how do we, we make these two things that were in real life uh, come across? Because that, that's one thing about Peter is that everyone loved him. Not just the audience who didn't know him, but the people who loved him and, and worked with him and, you know, had to put up with his, his ways and his demands. Everybody loved him, he, they knew he was a good person. Who just wanted what was best for the show, and his ways of going about it were not always uh, healthy. It, uh, it it hurt the show in, in a number of ways, um, due to mostly because he did he had trouble trusting many people. Uh, there was only a handful in his life that he really trusted. Then, you know, that they had his they were truly talented and they had his best interest at heart. And that handful, maybe a half dozen people in his life, people like Patrick McGowan and Dick Simmons, um, and he handed complete control of the show to those people. And everyone else, he second-guessed and third-guessed and fourth-guessed. So that, that was not always the right decision, um, but he, he always had the show in mind, uh, what would be best for it.
1: Um, Paul Robert Coyle. A uh, longtime television writer, he appeared on our program um, about a year ago, and he shared a story about an encounter he had with Falk, um, which revealed aspects of Falk's character that you cement throughout shooting Columbo, which is, I mean, um. Uh, Paul talks about how this is around the late 1990s. This is during kind of one of the periods when uh, Columbo was still in production on ABC, but they they were not producing or airing as many as they did when they first brought it back in the early 1990s. It was more of an occasional thing. And Paul had an idea for a Columbo that Peter liked, and they met several times to develop the story. But it never went anywhere because Falk showed that he was, you know, it, as, as you say, his indecisive nature show He could not make up his mind as to ha- how to really fix the script, and so it was. It was one of those ideas that died on the vine.
0: Yeah, that was, a, and, and there's a number of stories just like that. A number of fantastic scripts that never got made, and so often it was. It was. Peter Frock himself, who was the stumbling block because he just wasn't sure if it was perfect, and uh, up until the late 90s, NBC and later ABC wanted as many Columbos as he would make. It was basically his contracts in the final about 10 years of Columbo were, you can make as many as you want. <laughs> and often they were you know up to three a year, and I'm sure they would have made it up to Thirty a year if they'd allow it, but they figured that was realistically the most they could get out of him. And typically, they'd be lucky to get one a year um, if they were lucky in those those final years. And it was not not time, as was the problem in the early NBC years, um, and all these movie offers again, as it was in the early NBC years. But through the later 90s, it was just Peter couldn't make up his mind which which of these you know which of these will work, which of them should I do, and as a result, very few.
1: I mean. And that this speaks to one of my other takeaways from shooting Columbo, David, which is Falk and Columbo, as a series or series of movies, Falk and Columbo worked best when Falk had a strong producer overseeing him, whether he wanted to admit that or not.
0: Absolutely. And, and he had no one over him during those, those final years, he was the executive producer. Yeah. And what, what he needed, I think, for the best episodes, at least the, the ones I enjoyed most, is not just a s- extra-strong, talented producer, but someone who truly appreciated Columbo, the character, but Columbo, the show, as well. Because a couple of the people that Falk really trusted, later on, Dick Simmons and Patrick McGowan, were people who loved the Columbo character, but they did not like the Columbo program. They thought it was too formulaic, too predictable, too one-dimensional. You know, they weren't into mysteries or clues, so they had very uh, heavy emphasis on the villain and, you know, Columbo, and trying to bring out their backstories and their relatives and their history and, you know, these different things that didn't really have anything to do with the mystery, and it sort of took away the superstructure that that made Columbo the show so good. You know, Peter Falk, the character, made it great, but without that, you know, he, he was operated best in that world that Levinson and Link had created. And once you, you start ignoring that and clues become unimportant and the mystery becomes a, an afterthought, you know, then it just becomes, you know, the Columbo comedy hour. And that's... that's That's
1: that's not where he operates best. Yeah, and of of the two, Richard Allen Simmons comes across better overall than Patrick McGowan, and I'm a big Patrick McGowan fan. (laughs) But uh, 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 without giving too much away, um, uh, McGowan and Falk turned out to be uh, birds of the same feather in that they could be very self-indulgent and uh, their tendency to be self-indulgent did not always help the product.
0: No, and it, and it was, and Patrick McGowan was extremely talented, but he sort of wanted to remake this Columbo character in his own image. Of yes. How he would have done it if he were, you know, during the prisoner years.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and make it this really extra quirky, bizarre person who, who he just, goal in life is to make other people uncomfortable and that's that's not really colombo as as we've come to know him he doesn't really make you uncomfortable until the end he's he's a little annoying at first yeah. you don't get uncomfortable until you know two hours in and you realize oh my gosh i'm sitting in this pot of water and it's boiling <laughs> you know, I just, mm-hmm. and i just oh my gosh where did this come from and uh with patrick mcgoon he wanted to take uh, yeah, he wanted to step right into the boiling water from scene
1: one. Yeah, the best the best, and arguably worst example of McGowan's influence on Columbo would be Last Salute to the Commodore, which is Columbo at his most eccentric. Uh, uh, you, uh, If you pick up a copy of Shooting Columbo, you will get the backstory of Last Salute to the Commodore in all 68 other Columbo um, movies for television. David Koenig is the author of Shooting Columbo, uh, The Lives and Deaths of TV's Rumpel Detective, a blow-by-blow account of the making of the Columbo television series and the development of the Columbo character, both on NBC and on ABC. Shooting Columbo includes a treasure trove of behind-the-scenes production information from a host of sources, including information on the constant changes in scripts, Peter Falk's endless battles with Universal Studios, and both networks over the production of the series, a fun look at how the various locations in Beverly Hills were chosen, plus the answer to the eternal question, what was Columbo's first name? Shooting Columbo available wherever books are sold, as well as Amazon.com. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. This is sort of a sidebar to the whole narrative of shooting Columbo. But the section on the various mansions uh, that were chosen and why they were chosen, particularly for the NBC series, I, I enjoyed that because, again, that was part of the appeal. I mean, yes, that was part of the Columbo formula in that you had this working class guy contrasted with Lives of the Rich and Famous. And that that had a built-in drama.
0: Yeah, that, and, and there's just two chapters in the book that aren't aren't truly uh, chronological, where I sort of step out of the, the story, the narrative, to, to give the broader picture. And one's about the music of Colombo, and one is, as you mentioned, about the locations, because I I thought it just deserved its own section. Because as you say, that I mean, that's one of the reasons that he's in that. Exact environment, and those are all the episodes that work the best. he's in in these beautiful, you know, mansions, uh, you know, where you'd last expect for this mayhem to occur, and they, uh, you know, they had a team of people who went out and searched and tried to find the perfect house or country club or you know, whatever, whatever setting the, the script called for.
1: You mentioned the music. Columbo never had a theme song like. Rockford Files has a theme song, or Mannix has a theme song. You know that you that you immediately identify, that puts you in the mood to watch that show. Columbo had several. You know, I mean, the closest one would be a, um, uh, at least at least according to Bill Link, the closest one would be the the, the cue that Gil Millet wrote for "Death Lends a Hand," which was used throughout the first season. My personal favorite was the score. Uh, by Oliver Nelson for Greenhouse Jungle, which was used throughout the second and third year.
0: Yeah, no, th- that's true, and I don't know if that was intentional because none of the um, mystery movie wheel programs had their own specific theme song. If it was just the theme song for you know the Henry Mancini main theme for the uh, the mystery movie, and that's it was just a consequence of that. But uh, but yeah, I, I I love all those songs. <laughs> the different ones that would accompany him and and the music uh that oliver nelson wrote is is doubly outstanding because that um cue and the rest of that entire soundtrack were composed within days because (laughs) because the the original score that was written for that episode had to be had to be thrown out so that that was a sort of a last minute addition and it ended up turning out to be one of the, the greatest scores i think in uh Colombo history.
1: One of many happy accidents that uh, comprise the backstory of Colombo, the television series, and the development of the Lieutenant Columbo character, all of which you can find in David Koenig's excellent book *Shooting Columbo, The Lives and Deaths of TV's Rumpel Detective*, available wherever books are sold, as well as Amazon.com. Thought let's let's shift gears. Let's talk about let's let's talk about some of the interesting things that I learned about the show for the first time you at least at least tease them at least tease them a little bit um the backstory of the original stage production was very interesting to read about and there's there's a contrast it's a different kind of contrast but you have you have these great legendary stage actors in joseph cotton agnes moorhead and thomas mitchell and their their thoughts or their opinions of the very young Levinson and Link were very interesting to read about.
0: well it, it was because in discovering what really went on during the stage production, I'd always defaulted to the tale that Levinson and Link always told, which was that uh, you know they wrote this perfect script, and these <laughs> and uh, you know, the uh, producer didn't want to do it. And so they had big fights and they pulled it away from them and and said, well, we're not going to allow you to do that. And that's not exactly what happened according to to letters that their lawyer wrote and uh, the producers, um, their lawyer wrote in that uh, they just didn't think, the the actors and the producers just didn't think the script was good enough and it was flat and, and that the audience was really like the Columbo character that, that uh, even though he wasn't supposed to be the star, Thomas Mitchell was so engaging that people uh, really liked him. But he, I mean, just one month into the run, uh, he bowed out so that he got severely ill and left the production after just one month. And his replacement was sort of a, just a regular guy. So that the attendance at the show started going down and down and down to the point where they would pretend like thomas mitchell was still in the play (laughs) they knew he was back in california dying um they for the entire run of the show they advertised you know starring joseph cotton and thomas mitchell in prescription murder knowing there was zero chance that he was suddenly gonna you know come back to life and be in the show and then people would come to the show and and they'd make a little announcement of the the part, uh, you know, Thomas Mitchell couldn't make it today, so his part is being played by, you know, this guy he's never heard of. Um, and then Levinson and Link didn't want to change anything. They thought it was perfect, so they would refuse to make changes. Um, and then finally the the producer said, you know, that's it. We're never going to make it to Broadway with it as is. It's done. Um, and so the rights reverted back to Levinson and Link um, through that. Way, but it wasn't this this give-and-take struggle. It was, they were just intransigent. They just did not want to mess with it, and they accused the actors of being uh, limited in their abilities to deliver their, their greatness properly, and that they were just, you know, all prima donnas because they thought they were these famous people, you know, and, and then uh, the famous actors then would look at Levinson and Link as they were this sort of, they they nicknamed them Leopold and Loeb because uh, you know they were these these uh, little kid masterminds who thought they were so smart, but but really you know were uh, were evil.
1: Yeah, again, going back to the to the basic contrast, you have these legendary stage actors, and Agnes Moorhead and Joseph Cotton, who they're used to working with Orson Welles. They're used, to, I mean, there's a certain caliber they're accustomed to. And they were not television performers, whereas this script, this this stage production they were performing were written by two up-and-coming quote-unquote television writers, and so they had that bias they had to work against, you know, work work through. So that's all part of that. That, that was a very intriguing little uh, drama behind the scenes that I enjoyed reading and shooting. Colombo.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, you just
1: described it much further than I did. <laughs> David Koenig is on the line with us. David's latest book, Shooting Columbo, takes you behind the scenes of the production of both the NBC and ABC incarnations of the Columbo television series, as well as the development of the Columbo character in both cases. David will be back next week for part two of our conversation talk some more about some of the changes that Richard Levinson and William Link made to the play Enough Rope that led to the development of the Columbo character as we know him. Today we'll also talk about the one and only time that Peter Falk directed a Columbo and how Falk learned very quickly that he was not necessarily suited to become a director. We'll talk about that and more next week on TV Confidential. In the meantime, shooting Columbo, the lives and deaths of of TV's Rumpel Detective is available Amazon.com, BarnesNoble.com wherever books are sold online. Take a quick timeout. Then Greg Airbar will join us for our DVD report next on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk